In the name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning. I like getting better at things. What about you? You like getting better at things? I like get it, getting better at being a husband or a father, uh, finding that I have more patience and more perspective, uh, that I am more conscious about how I express my love. I will say that is a lifelong learning process that involves a lot of apology and repentance, but um, I do enjoy that. I, I like getting better at working out, being able to run further, or do more push-ups, something like that. I like getting better at my job. Uh, I don't know what it is for your job, but for my job, that often looks like uh, reading books or going to conference, learning more about uh, leading others, expanding the toolbox that I have for preaching and teaching, things like that. Um, and it feels great to see progress, doesn't it? You know, it feels great to uh, put the work in and see the work that comes out. Uh, self-help is an enormous industry in our culture. Multi-billions of dollars uh, every year just in the U.S. alone. And I think there is, in fact, real value in working on ourselves, seeking uh, to get stronger at the important aspects of our life. And yet... The self-help industry really feeds right into uh, and fits perfectly with the fiercely independent, uh, individualistic culture we have. Uh, you know, we have a, ch- a culture that champions rugged individualism and the self-made man or woman. And we are told nearly in every aspect of our lives to look within, to dig deep, to find the strength within you. And, and that's fine as far as it goes, but what happens is that we just naturally bring that to our faith in Jesus. And our religion then quickly becomes more about what we do than about what God has already done for us in Christ. So we come to this passage from the Gospel of Luke that Father Trent just read, and on the surface, it seems a little disjointed, right? Like a little, like what does each verse have to do with the next? But there is actually a current that runs uh, underneath and flows all the way through it. So the core of the passage uh, has to do with the mustard seed and the mulberry bush. And the question that it asks of us is, who are you relying on? For the strength of your faith. Who are you relying on for the strength of your faith? Now, if, if you're like me, uh, for the f- first 15 years of my faith, I, was, um, I assumed, because of everything else, every other arena of my life, I assumed that the strength of my faith in Christ was my responsibility. Just like my responsibility to get better at work or at home or at any hobby or pursuit that I might have. And so I worked. I worked at my faith, and I was serious uh, about it. Uh, I was on every committee. I, I, I've said this before. I think I, a lot of people nearly like drink themselves out of college in their first semester. I nearly Bible studied my way uh, out of college uh, my first semester. Uh, I was, and what happened, though, I was, I was constantly swinging between being frustrated with my inability to meet the standards that I assumed God had for me, on the one hand, and then just on the other hand, blowing off the standards that I assumed God had for me, which just ultimately led to more frustration. And 
I, I don't know if you've had a similar experience, but it was very frustrating swinging back and forth. So we're going we're gonna to work through this gospel passage, and by the end, what we're going to try to do is answer the question, who do you want to be relying on for the strength of your faith? So we're going to talk about the expectations of the Christian life, the freedom of the Christian life, and the hero of the Christian life. The expectations, the freedom, the hero of the Christian life. So first, the expectations of the Christian life, let me tell you, they're high, right? They're high expectations. You look at this this passage, Jesus says, temptations will come, but woe to the one through whom they come. Now, what we expect, expect him to say, maybe, is temptations will come, so steer clear of the temptations. Don't fall into temptation. Good advice. But that's not what he says. Woe to those through whom they come. He pronounces a woe upon those, through, uh, those who tempt others to sin. And he says, having a giant rock hung around your neck and being thrown into the ocean is better than what awaits those who tempt others to sin. Now, no problem, right? No problem. Except that I start thinking about like times I sort of egged others on at maybe at a party or something. Or I start wondering, was I always in bounds in this way as a boyfriend back in the day? Or more recently, have I been obstinate and selfish to my family in a way that pushed them to unnecessary anger? Like, and there's several more I deleted in my notes. <laughs> I mean, I could, I could go on. I, I'm not so sure I'm squeaky clean on this one. So woe be unto me. So this very high bar is set uh, that we are not to cause someone else to offend, to, to fall into sin. But then there's another bar that's set even higher. And by even higher, what I mean is like to the moon. And that bar is forgiveness. We are not to cause someone to fall into sin, but when someone sins against us, we are to forgive. If your brother sins against you seven times in a day and seven times says, I'm sorry. You must forgive. It sounds a little more like a call to be a doormat than a call simply to forgive, doesn't it? I mean, Jesus, come on, this is unreasonable, right? This week, the world was stunned as an 18-year-old African-American boy from Dallas named Brant Jean told Amber Geiger, who was the white woman who killed his brother, that he forgave her and he hugged her as she sobbed and he invited her to give her life to Christ. And it was beautiful and stunning and it was all over the internet. And it was maybe a little threatening and for some a little unsettling or conflicting. Now, why were we so stunned and conflicted about this? It's because, I think, the price was so high. I mean, she killed his brother in his brother's apartment. And while others understandably called for justice, called for a lengthier sentence, called for reform within the Dallas Police Department, this young man 
forgave. And he offered love eyeball to eyeball and heart to heart to one who did not deserve it. And you know, commentators just didn't really know what to do with it, did they? And many said they weren't sure they could ever do what this young man did. Forgiveness like this made headlines because it is so rare in our culture. And it's rare because forgiveness requires that we lay down our pride. We lay down our rights. And the bigger the offense, the farther, the lower down our pride has to go. Forgiveness requires a costly self-emptying. I mean, if I owe you money and you forgive the debt, who pays that cost? You do. And so when the Jean family has to forgive Amber Geiger, who absorbs that cost? They do. And yet, I mean, even if we're convinced that it's right to forgive, even if we're convinced that it's actually better for our own health and peace of mind, that forgiveness often comes at a cost that we are unwilling to pay. And yet, forgiveness is what Jesus requires of his disciples in this passage. I mean, once, maybe. Twice, Jesus, in a day? That's pushing it. (laughs) Seven times? When a claim of repentance is long past seeming hollow, when we have to choose to love rather than to hate or to just be exasperated? Jesus, beyond reason. It's a price that seems unreasonable and too high. Jesus sets the bar for his disciples at an astronomical level. And when I say disciples, I don't just mean the twelve, right? All of us. And these, this is just, these are just two of the expectations that Jesus has for uh, the Christian life. We're not to lead others into temptation, and we are to forgive those who have fallen into temptation, especially those who have sinned against us. No matter what. And it's this point that the disciples cry out, Lord, increase our faith. Increase our faith. You're asking too much. I mean, this is not a plea of piety. Increase our faith. This is desperation. The disciples know they cannot do what Jesus is asking of them. I know I cannot do what Jesus is asking. I mean, maybe once in a while, but like not in any sustaining way. And so the disciples say, if we're going to have any shot at this Jesus, you are going to have to increase our faith. And then, perhaps unexpectedly, after such lofty requirements, we come to the freedom of the Christian life. It's this point where the the disciples come with open arms, empty hands. It's in my hand, no price I bring. That they look to Jesus. And Jesus says, if you had faith uh, even the size of a tiny 
mustard seed. You could tell a mulberry tree to uproot itself and plant itself in the river. Now, a lot of you have great faith. And if, I'm going to tell you, if you start talking to our live oak trees, and any, we lose any of them because you start uprooting them, you're going to have to talk to the junior warden. <laughs> Is that right? Um, just kidding. Okay. Um, what is so, I mean, okay, that's not what Jesus means, but what is it, so what does he mean by this strange statement? The disciples have desperately asked for greater faith so that they can do what Jesus is requiring to lead others well and to forgive radically and relentlessly. And Jesus says, it is not the size of your faith that matters. And I wish that for those first 15 years of my Christian life that I could have heard this because I worked and I worked to a point of frustration. And I I read this many times, but what I thought this meant was if you could do such a great work with tiny faith, just think what you could do with great faith. And that's practically the opposite of what Jesus means. He's saying that the strength of faith comes not from the size of the faith, but from the object of the faith. The strength of faith comes not from the size of the faith, but from the object of the faith. And this is just practical advice. Let me give you an example. If I have faith in myself, I mean, I believe it with all my being that if I just work hard enough, I could go play in the NBA. Then I want to tell you it doesn't matter how big that faith was, I'm going to be disappointed, right? And there is no amount of work that I could put in that, where, the, um, where that faith would lead to what I was hoping for because the object of my faith, myself in that case, would be insufficient. Likewise, if I was driving, if I'm getting ready to drive across the Buckman Bridge and I am terrified because I have no faith that it is going to hold me up, it is going to come crashing into the river if I come over the top, that bridge isn't waiting on me to start believing for, for it can hold me up. It can hold me up whether or not I believe it, right? Because the, 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 uh, strength of, uh, the strength of faith comes not from the size of the faith, but from the object of the faith. And Jesus says, even if you have tiny faith in the right object, which is Jesus, that you can tell a mulberry tree to uproot. Now, he is not talking about mulberry trees, So what's he talking about? He's talking about the things that are rooted, planted in our hearts. And and, and given this context, I think particularly he's talking about the things that are rooted in our hearts that keep us from forgiving. I don't know where you are with that, what's going on in your life. But if you have any faith at all in Jesus, then all the anger the resentment, the jealousy, the fear, whatever it is, it can be uprooted by His work, by His strength. Because it's not the size of the faith that matters, it's the object that matters. And so where does Jesus' power come from? I mean, He's God, right? He's all-powerful. But for us, the power comes and from the fact that He has already forgiven us far beyond what is reasonable. 
I mean, if you just stack up all the ways, all the instances that we haven't met just these two requirements, all the times we may have, in fact, led someone into temptation or sin, all the times that we have withheld forgiveness or said, I'll forgive you if, I'll forgive you, but, we just take all that and put that alone on the cross to be crucified with Jesus, that's a lot. You just take everything, then just think about everything else that we've done in thought, word, and deed, things done and left undone, things known and unknown. All that Jesus took with him in his death so that it may be uprooted from our hearts. So that he may look upon the guilty in the courtroom of divine justice and say, I love you, I forgive you, and I want to give you a hug. That is the freedom of the Christian life. It's all His work. Any ability we have to fulfill what He has required of us to forgive, to lead others well, He will do in and through us. Because we have been forgiven without strings. Because of Christ, we can forgive as Christ has forgiven us without strings. It's His work. And we get to enjoy it. That is the freedom of the Christian life. And so when we do forgive radically and relentlessly, we're not going to get proud about it, pat ourselves on the back, get the big head, because it's His work. Because Jesus is the hero of the Christian life, right? You're not the hero of the Christian life. Jesus is. And so this this is how these next verses follow. The servants come in from the field. They've done just the thing that they were supposed to do. And so they are not looking for some parade to be thrown in their honor. They say, we're just unworthy servants. We're just doing what was our duty. We're not a hero. We're just serving the Master. All right? We, when we exercise some mighty act of faith, like massive forgiveness, we're not the hero. Jesus is the hero. So much is going to be made of Brant John, right? And he's going to be on all the talk show circuits and stuff and, uh, for this public act of grace. And our prayer for him is that amid all this adulation that he gets, that he will continue to just shrug humbly and look at Jesus and point to Jesus. For it was Christ working through him all along. St. Paul wrote, To the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So friends, who are you relying on for the strength of your faith? And who do you want to be relying on for the strength of your faith? It's so easy to assume that our faith in Jesus works just like everything else. And so we try harder and we do better. And it's not wrong to put effort into your faith. 
But the strength of our faith comes not from our efforts, but from the object of our faith. As we look to Him, as we look to Christ alone, as we look to His life, His death, and His resurrection, as we look to His love and His grace and His acceptance, as we look to Him, He will indeed increase our faith. And He will indeed uproot those things in our hearts that need His touch. And He will indeed work through us to love and to forgive. Amen.